Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Thursday, uh, September 23rd edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, we have a lot to talk about today, so I want to get right to our panel and begin our conversations because it is Thursday. Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the AJC, is my partner on the show today. Kevin, good to have you with us. How you doing? Uh, doing well, Bill, and it's great to be here, especially because one of my uh, colleagues from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution will be joining us. I'm glad we, I'm glad he could find time to be on the show because he's definitely one of our most productive and busy journalists. Wait, do you mean the Pulitzer Prize finalist from back in his days in North Carolina news, the Neiman Fellow at Harvard, uh, and also a member now, I think, of the Neiman uh, Board, uh, among many other honors of that Ernie Suggs has won as a journalist. Is that the person you're talking about being on the show with us today, Kevin? That's the guy, and I think he's got a fresh haircut today, too. Yeah, hello, <laughs> Ernie Suggs. It really is a pleasure to have you with us on Political Rewind today. Thank you uh, so very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. And thanks um, for the Ernie invitation. Suggs is Sure. Um, and, and we're going to talk in a minute about one of the very specific subjects that we were uh, looking forward to having you talk with us about, and that's the Atlanta race riot of 1906. Before we do that, uh, let's introduce uh, Kurt Young, frequent panelist on this show, the professor of political science, chair of the political science department at Clark Atlanta University. How are you holding up in the middle of teaching in a pandemic, Kurt? Uh, it, it, we're back on ground now, so that part is good. I'm not sure that all my colleagues would agree with that, but I'm particularly uh, eager to get back and be back on campus. But you know, Bill, it's, it's a it's a complex and dynamic and 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 you know, in some, some cases, a scary uh, process. And uh, I'm just thankful that we are we seem to be doing our best to try to figure out a way forward, uh, given all that's confronting us. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Kurt. Uh, let's get right to it. Kevin, um, you know, we, we have all heard a lot now, I think, about the Tulsa massacre, which took place in 1921, and suddenly has popped up in popular culture. HBO series uh, Watchmen uh, dealt, dealt with it extensively. Um, there have been other uh, entertainment programs that have taken a look at uh, the uh, the massacre, the Black Wall Street massacre of 21. But as Ernie points out in the story that he wrote for the AJC yesterday, long before that, 15 years before that, we had a similar uh, uh, series of incidents take place in Atlanta four days in uh, 1906, when a white mob went on a rampage, Kevin, in a black community, killed at least 25 people, we believe, terrorized far more than that. And it's a story that is still being told, Kevin. Yeah, you know, uh, the Tulsa thing, uh, you know, which has gotten so much attention, I actually have a friend whose uh, family uh, was there at the time, and he went back for these commemorations because of the impact it had on his family. And the, the Atlanta story is just very less well-known and less often told. And I think, you know, when we have a chance to talk to Ernie here, he'll be able to tell us a little bit about 
why that was and, and what it means, uh, you know, kind of in understanding Atlanta's history. But it is, uh, it is an event that it's really worth making sure people know about and understand its implications and what happened as a result of it. Ernie, we're talking about this today, and you wrote about it in yesterday's paper because it was 115 years ago, as of yesterday, September 22nd, that this uh, riot began and lasted for four days. Uh, Just give us an overview of exactly what happened uh, in those four days. Yeah, well, thank you all. Thanks again for having me. Uh, Yes, on September 22nd, 1906, uh, white mobs uh, ravaged through... um, Black communities in downtown Atlanta and killed, maimed, and 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 destroyed property to the tune of 25 deaths. Um, and it's kind of one of those things where you know we, we talked about Tulsa and you know Lovecraft Country also uh, dramatized Tulsa this year as well. But you know a lot of people, like Kevin said, don't know about this 1906 uh, riot or massacre as the the word that they're using now um, because uh, it, we'll get into this later. Um, how 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 the Atlanta wave was kind of invented because of this, but it, it was it was a situation where um, all of these things and Dr. Young, as you know, I'm pretty sure you, you know this. All these things kind of start the same way. You know, it's it's um, it's political eminence. It's you know it's jealousy. It says uh, the black intellectual class of Du Bois will call it Negrophobia, which is this unrelenting fear of black progress, fear of black people. So you had, you know, political unrest. You had a, a, the first generation of black people who were born after slavery, who were buying homes and, and opening businesses and going to colleges. Atlanta had this high concentration of historically black colleges right here in Atlanta. Um, you had people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who was in town writing, you know, three years earlier, had written The Souls of Black Folks. You know, even days before this happened, William Jennings Bryan and Booker T. Washington, which I didn't get in the story, were in Atlanta lecturing. So there was a lot of stuff going on in Atlanta at that time. And you put that on top of the fact that um, several media outlets, the Atlanta Journal, the Atlanta Constitution, and several other papers were reporting unfounded cases of assaults on white women. Um, uh, So that right there is the tinderbox. That's the spark that sets this whole tinderbox of fire. And you put all this together and you have this outrage on September 22nd where these communities were destroyed and 25 black people were killed. Um, Kurt, you know, we this all took played out in a neighborhood known as Brownsville, which uh, is basically downtown. Uh, Edgewood Avenue, I think, is, uh, is the part of that community. Um, and and as, as Ernie points out, Kurt, we, uh, we know that there was a thriving black business class, an intellectual class that had grown into the, up in that community and was, was doing pretty well. And, and this, it, what's interesting about that, I think, Kurt, is there are some people who trace that all the way back to when black men first got the franchise in the aftermath of the Civil War and for a period of time until they lost it again during Jim Crow, that having that franchise helped them uh, establish themselves in a much more successful way. And and so this is backlash from a white community that feared, and I think it's fair to say detested the success that blacks in the community were having, yes? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and and first, before I continue, I want to say thank you so much uh, to you, Bill, for having this conversation. And I appreciate you having uh, Kevin here, um, um, given his, his, his stature in the community speaks volumes for, uh, for for the way you're framing this conversation. And I really want to say thank you so much to Mr. Suggs for writing this piece. Um, he, he, he's right on point, perfect timing to, to address this. Now, getting to your question, Bill, you, you're exactly right. You know, when we look at this location, and by the way, I don't live far from this, this area. I actually pass through this community every day on my way to campus. And so um, uh, it, it's someplace that, that I, I have a certain sense of. But when you look at that particular part of downtown Atlanta, that part of Atlanta was connected to the long, by that time, flourishing uh, community of Sweet Auburn, right? Um, it, it's at the tip of Sweet Auburn, Auburn where Sweet Auburn meets um, meets downtown. And this is going to be prior to the construction of, uh, of 75 and 85, or uh, the connector, which severed that community from downtown in, in, in what we now understand to be a very unfortunate way. Um, but the reason that I make that point about Sweet Auburn is that this is a period, an area of flourishing of black politics, black social uh, um, arrangement, black culture, uh, black artistic expression, uh, black businesses and what you have and what, what have you. And Atlanta, as it is now, was considered to be a major focal point of, of black activ uh, activity in these areas throughout the country. So when we are seeing these kinds of responses to black progress, um, beginning, uh, I think you can make the case that it begins to flow out of the newfound political power associated with the right uh, uh, of male suffrage, right? We always must make that distinction that it's uh, black men, as you correctly pointed out, Bill. Um, black, black women will have to wait a bit longer before they enjoy the same uh, freedoms. But nonetheless, it's connected to the same expressions of black economic, political, social power throughout the country and certainly throughout the way, uh, throughout the South. All right. So it, it, it's important to contextualize what happened in Atlanta at that time as a part of a process that's taking place across America and certainly across the South. It's in, it's in uh, um, various parts of Florida, uh, um, Texas, uh, um, of course, uh, Spring, Springfield, Ohio, throughout the country, you're seeing these kind of racial uh, massacres occurring. Uh, I also want to make a quick point in recognizing the fact that you didn't use race riot, Bill. I appreciate that. This is a massacre of, of this African-American community that's a part of a trend that was taking place across the entire country. Um, I'll I tell you what, uh, I want to continue this conversation. There's a lot more to unpack here. Um, our listeners know that we are in our fall fund raising drive, our pledge drive, and uh, so we have to devote a few minutes of, uh, of the show today to uh, giving you a chance, if you have not helped us help support our programming, uh, to do that now. Um, you pay for our show. It's as simple as that. You've allowed us to go from one day a week, where we started seven and a half years ago, to five days a week, twice a day being on the air. And uh, it's your contributions which allow us to do just that. So if you can help us, now is the time to think about doing it. If you already have, we are incredibly grateful. But here's how you can get involved with GPB, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes. AJC editor Kevin Riley, Kurt Young, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University, Ernie Suggs of the AJC join us. Um, Ernie, I, um, I want to, you mentioned in passing that part of the, uh, uh, the spark for uh, this massacre 
in 1906 was um, uh, the way in which uh, local news organizations were writing about the black community back then. Uh, there were some apparently false reports about uh, black men attacking white women. Um, and and there's no escaping the fact that a white media in this instance, as in so many other instances back in those days across the country, um, used it was race baiting at its worst, and it did contribute to this. Yes. Oh yeah, of course. And and and, and the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution and the other papers are definitely not the only papers in the country who've ever done this. Obviously. Um, so yeah. yeah. So yeah, there were there was a formation of of of, of fear and anxiety and hysteria that was created by the media because you know even even here in Atlanta. You know, there were headlines saying that black, you know, half naked black man tries to climb in window. No one was ever convicted of that. No one was ever charged of that. And no one was ever arrested for any of that. In fact, no one was even really ever arrested for any of the riots. So, you know, the media at that time, it was a different it was a different time. There were different requirements. There were different um, mores and, and ideas about how journalism was carried out in those days. Uh, thank God things have changed. But, you know, the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution are definitely not the only ones who, who've done this. This is all over the country. Um, so, yeah. Um, Kevin? Hey, Ernie, a question, a question for you, and then I, I hope Dr. Young will, will follow up. You know, you devote a lot of time and energy and expertise to telling these kinds of stories. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to, you've been with us for a, while, a long time, how the audience reaction you get to them has changed over the years. And then just, you know, uh, Dr. Young, if you'd follow up after Ernie talks a little bit about how perceptions of, of these incidents have changed. Well, social media has definitely changed the way I get responses to my stories. You know, I, I can write a beautiful story. I thought, I think the, um, the the Atlanta massacre story was a beautifully written story, if, if I may say so myself. But then I'll get <laughs> I'll get a host of emails um, from people saying that it was a great story, but I'll also host of emails saying, "Why are we bringing this up? Why 115 years later are we talking about this?" You know, and you know, Kevin, I'm sure you get this all the time. Just you know, what are you going to talk about next? How does Trump Ernie, relate Ernie, to this? I mostly get email talking about how beautifully written your stories are, but okay. go ahead. <laughs> Please uh, pass those along to me. But um, <laughs> I think that, Kevin, the, to answer your question, I think that the, the political climate has changed so much. Social media has made us so accessible now that we're getting everything. So regardless of what kind of story I write, as long as, you know, I have black in there in that story, I'm going to get an email from someone who's complaining about that story. It could be about black Girl Scout troops plant flowers along Auburn Avenue, and I'll get a story. I'll get emails about why do I have to write about black Girl Scout troops. So obviously if I'm writing a story about uh, a, a major racial uprising 115 years ago, I'm going to be getting a lot of complaints from people who are, who are not understanding why the Atlanta Journal Constitution is "quote unquote" bringing up old stuff, um, and, and and it's troubling to hear that that happens, uh, Ernie. Uh, we we understand that well, but you know, uh, Kurt, I want to draw a parallel here, if I may. Uh, and and you all are welcome to disagree with me if you think I'm I'm making a false comparison. Right now, 
so the 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 uh, massacre in Atlanta has gone largely unnoticed for many many years, and Tulsa. May you know it may have been because there were a number of people working in the fictional realm, like the writers of Watchmen, the initial um, uh, uh, graphic novel Watchmen, which the TV series was based on. They decided to bring it to our attention, but that hasn't happened in Atlanta. And here's the interesting parallel I'm wondering about. Right now, there's a certain backlash in largely the African American community to the fact that now we know to be the homicide, the murder of Gabby Petito, the white woman who was off on an adventure with her fiancé, has gotten enormous attention while the deaths, the the missing uh, black women, the unsolved murders of black women have not gotten anywhere near as much attention. And there's been quite a backlash uh, this week to that. And and I wonder if you see any parallels uh, between that and the fact that we didn't know much about what happened in Atlanta in 1906. If there are parallels, there are parallels in the sense that just just as you mentioned with the, uh, the uh, this recent uh, discussion um, and the discussion around the Atlanta massacre, we tend to exist in two different realms. Right around and along racial lines, notwithstanding the extent to which there must there are some progress has occurred, uh, the reality, as I think the, uh, um, uh, the the church goals will say, that black folk and white folks still worship the same God in different churches on Sunday, right? And so, likewise, <clears throat> there is a discussion around uh, the legacy, the impact, the importance of the uh, race massacre in Atlanta in certain circles. Uh, so those who would, for example, be a part of a, 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 a black collective where we study, uh, for example, the experiences of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the lessons of W.E.B. Du Bois, will have a strong foundation in understanding the profound impact of that experience on the development of Du Bois' ideas. And I, I, I again, must say how uh, proud I was to see that reference in the article that was written, because those of us who study or those who study Du Bois will know this story, right? And those who try to understand the impact of racial violence in the development of American society and, and, and culture and certainly uh, its impact on American politics will, will, will know Tulsa. Um, uh, I recall the discussions around Tulsa being widely understood in some segments of the black community, but others outside of the black community didn't know, know much about Tulsa. So th- that's where I, I, I like to see uh, some of the parallels. If I can, but I know time is short, but I really want to say something about uh, understanding the development of uh, of that uh, that that racial uh, massacre in Atlanta at that time. One of the reasons that it unfolds the way that it, unfold, it unfolded, particularly as it relates to the media at the time, is remember these racial uh, acts of violence are not simply isolated expressions of individual uh, um, um, ex- expressions of of hatred and what have you. In many cases, they are linked to systems of white supremacy that exist in the South, right? Systems of white supremacy that link together many segments of the white community, right? And now as you have black people beginning to penetrate into these segments, the response to this black progress is going to come from many directions. And certainly the media is not exempt from this kind of system of white supremacy that existed, right? Um, And so I think that's an important way to have a fuller picture of what exactly is occurring. Kevin? 
Um, Kurt, well, something I wanted to follow up on that Ernie mentioned uh, and seems to, uh, you know, Ernie described the sparks that, that caused this incident. And he describes this uh, idea of reports of white women being attacked by black men. And, and that idea of, I mean, the Emmett Till uh, tragedy mm-hmm. has its roots in a similar incident. And when you, when you learn about these incidents and read about them, that, that, that I, I don't know if, I, if it's even appropriate to call it a theme, but that kind of incident or that kind of, of reporting of an incident that often turns out to be, of course, untrue, sparks a thing. Give, give us the, where does that come from? Why does that happen? So remember, the, the setting of the Atlanta massacre uh, uh, is at a period of time where we, are, we just struggled with, the country is just struggling with the ending of Reconstruction, right? Uh, and period of where, uh, uh, this period where there's a national backlash against expressions of black freedom, right? And so what we find throughout the country is that that kind of political reality manifests itself culturally. Likewise, the cultural reality within the society is going to manifest itself in how we discuss and do politics in the country. So if there is this broader hovering cultural reality in society where black men, black men and black maleness is feared, so feared to the extent that it can lead to the massacre of significant portions of the black community, then we're going to see that repeated throughout the country. And you make a good point. It's not just Atlanta. It's not just Tulsa. It's also in places such as Rosewood in Florida. Uh, and it's a thing that's repeated over and over. One needs to need, need to look no further than reading an important piece, uh, I think, in a critical piece in American history written by uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, entitled A Red Record. And she carefully documented these uh, expressions of racial violence and massacres and, and was able to tie them back to uh, uh, this, this notion that of black men attacking uh, um, white women, right? So the point that I'm making is that fear is a part of the American cultural uh, uh, network, and you see it in, in films such as Birth of a Nation, right? You see this kind of theme repeated time and time again. Um, I've got to get to another pledge break, uh, our final pledge break of the show. Uh, I want to continue talking about this because as Ernie alluded to briefly in, in the beginning of the show, there was something that many people consider pretty positive that came out of this, something which became known as the Atlanta Way. And I want Ernie to explain what that means to us in a moment. Before we go to pledge, I do want to tell you about an event that's taking place tonight on Zoom that I hope some of you will want to participate in. Um, The Carter Presidential Library and GPB are working together to present a screening of a new documentary for PBS in their own words about the life of Jimmy Carter. And we're going to show that tonight, and then I'm going to lead a conversation with Ambassador Andrew Young, with Jason Carter, who is Jimmy Carter's grandson and now the chairman of the Carter Center, um, and uh, our own Professor Andre Gillespie of Emory University. If you're interested in participating, you've got to register. Go to gpb.org community, and you can sign up and get uh, information there on how you can be part of the conversation tonight. Okay, let's take our final pledge break of this show, a chance for you to sign up to help us out. Here we go. Ernie Suggs, you mentioned in your story that uh, after the terrible events of uh, late September in Atlanta in 1906, there was a coming together, a meeting of the minds of black and white leaders in the community. 
And it led to what we now think of as um, the Atlanta way. Talk about how black and white leaders decided they had better figure out a, a way to, to head off this kind of problem from occurring again, and how there's been a legacy of that all the way through 2021. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I think it's also important to note that in order to get the riots or the massacre stopped, it was, you know, white business leaders recognized that this massacre was potentially going to hurt the city's bottom line. So that was kind of one of the main reasons why they wanted to stop. So they called in, you know, the National Guard and, you know, they called in, you know, they, they ordered the police to kind of get this under control because this is going to hurt the city's commerce. It's going to hurt the city's bottom line. They feared that if black people were continuing to die and continuing to move or potentially moving out of the city, that it would also cost the city's um, real estate market, you know, to, to crumble. So after the riot, they got together with black leaders in the community to come up with a way to have discussions about race relations. I mean, they weren't perfect, as Dr. Young will probably say, but they were an attempt to bring both parties to the table to talk about things. And throughout the whole the whole period, white leaders would come to the black community and say, hey, you know, what's going on? Do you need anything? Is everything okay? That became what is known today as the Atlanta Way. And the Atlanta Way, for those of you who are listening, is just that way in which Atlanta, through its business community of black and white, have been able to kind of stay above the fray in terms of violence, in terms of racial animus that has destroyed other cities. So if you look at other southern cities like Birmingham and Montgomery, Little Rock, um, um, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, those cities erupted in violence during the civil rights era, whereas Atlanta did not. And, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested once in Atlanta, but after Martin Luther King's death, where cities like Detroit and Brooklyn and, I mean, Harlem and all those cities kind of blew up and exploded, Atlanta remained relatively calm. So that's all part of the Atlanta way, that way of Atlanta quickly understanding that in order for us to build a city that was going to be based on commerce, that was going to be based on business, that's going to be able to eventually attract the Atlanta Braves and the Atlanta Falcons to the city, there needed to be some form of racial conciliation or reconciliation that we, uh, that we came to the table to understand that business, for better or worse, trumps everything else. And I use that as a, you know, no pun intended. It trumps everything yeah. else. And, you know, that's why a lot of people were so surprised and disappointed in 2020 after George Floyd and after Rashard Brooks as to witnessing the violence that was happening in the city of Atlanta. The, you know, the little girl being killed um, after the Rashard Brooks killing. Uh, police cars being set afire. All of downtown Atlanta being smashed by protesters and rioters and massacres. So that's why that was so important, because the city had kind of gotten away from that Atlanta way. But that Atlanta way, you know, and I'll, I'll close on this, has, like I said, it brought us the Braves, it brought us the Falcons and the Hawks, it brought us the Olympics, it brought us a string of black mayors. So as horrible and as tragic as the 1906 massacre was, it did lay a foundation of changing what Atlanta would become 115 years later. Kevin, um, obviously, as editor of the AJC, you don't sign off on every story that appears in the pages of your newspaper. But ultimately, as the boss, you're responsible to some extent, to a large extent, 
uh, when people want to talk to you about the stories uh, they see here. 115 years ago, it's a very long time, uh, media organizations and the way they looked at life and the composition of those organizations being all white, very, very different than uh, today. So given all that, Ernie says people wonder why this story is published 115 years later. What do you say as the editor of the paper that's now had to acknowledge that, yeah, back then we were kind of part of the problem? Well, a couple of things, Bill. I'm entirely responsible for all the stories we publish. Yeah. And that's why I'm glad to have someone like Ernie on the staff who, who works so hard and whose reporting is, is so thorough and trustworthy. Um, look, I think that um, to you know understand our present, make plans for our future, we have to understand our past. It's really that simple. And uh, I, we uh, explore historical uh, moments in Atlanta, uh, you know, often on anniversaries and when they're relevant, because don't forget, I mean, they they help us understand why things are as they are today. And we have a lot of new people coming to town. I mean, one of the great gifts for me in the uh, nearly 11 years that I've been here is to learn about so much of this stuff and understand the complexities and the incredible story of this city, which has got its difficult moments, uh, and we share as the newspaper in those difficult moments, participate in those difficult moments, and its glorious days, which we also are part of. So um, this is a very special place, and uh, very special places need citizens to understand them and work to better them and respect them, and that's part of what we do. Um, thank you for that. Um, I, I would urge you all to take a look at Ernie's piece. Um, also, Ernie uh, refers to a book written on the the, uh, the massacre by Rebecca Burns, who is a, a, a remarkable uh, journalist in uh, Georgia. And uh, Sam, maybe we could post a link to Ernie's piece where you can read his story, and also it'll give you some information about Rebecca's uh, book on the same subject. Um, I want to take up a couple more. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Kevin. Well, Did you want to I, say I have to take a Ernie, moment to, Ernie? To, to, oh. Let me, go let me ahead. I'll, I'll pitch this to Ernie, but Ernie's got a new project going, uh, an email that people can, can sign up for that really will be highlighting his work and the work of others. So if you just will indulge us a moment, Bill, I'll let Ernie talk about that really quickly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, for those of you who have subscribed this uh, Thursday, uh, you should have gotten an unapologetically ATL uh, email newsletter, which is a brand new, new newsletter that Ned Jerome and Naja Parker and I have put together for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And the newsletter is um, intended to um, to talk to our African-American readers, to uh, to to bring in our African-American readers and to also give the whole city, the region, and the country a glimpse at what Atlanta's black culture is. So it's going to be a, a wonderful, it's a, this, we're in our second week. It's a wonderful newsletter that, that, that explores what Atlanta is as a black community, dating back to, you know, Reconstruction all the way up until what we're doing now, from, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois to Andre 3000. So it's a great product. Um, you can follow me, um, you know, you can reach out to me to figure out how to, um, or we can put the link in here to figure out how you can subscribe to it. But it's a great newsletter. The agency has a lot of wonderful newsletters, and I think this is going to be one of the top ones. 
So unapologetically, All right. uh, un- unapologetically, yeah, I actually just signed up for it this morning. Um, okay, all right, let's great. move on if, if we can. Uh, Kevin, we now know that there are at least 25 uh, faculty members at the University of Georgia who are going to demand that their, that their students wear masks in their classrooms. Uh, that, of course, contradicts the chancellor's uh, uh, insistence that there be a mask optional policy on the university campuses. We know that we've already had some people who work in the public university system in Georgia who have resigned rather than uh, risk their health. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. These, these teachers, Kevin, and, and professors can be fired for violating what the chancellor has put, although I'd be shocked if it went that far, Kevin. Well, they, they seem to be serious and upset by it, and I think it's it's really well captured in something that uh, Maureen Downey had in her blog, uh, one of our folks this week, where a faculty member at the Georgia College um, said, and I quote directly, we are teaching in COVID factories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Kurt, you you all have a mandate for at, at masking in place at Clark Atlanta, as do most private universities across the state of Georgia, um, right? So I would assume that you're, you know, to the extent that you feel a little safer, you're not having to deal with this, what seems to be the politics of optional masking on the state school campuses. Right. Clark Atlanta University has a, a clear, uh, uh, both a vaccination mandate and a masking mandate. So we're trying to address it from both of those angles. Now, of course, the vaccination mandate will have built into it uh, uh, releases or exception, exemptions, if you will, for religious and health reasons, right? But the idea is to be able to get to some level of normalcy by keeping in place those those two policies and, and and it's even with that it's a difficult difficult challenge so i can only imagine uh what's happening at the other institutions where those kind of mandates don't exist but one thing bill i think is happening here it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out the politics of covid how it plays out on college campuses college campuses in addition to the high level of, of insecurity as captured in the comment that you just mentioned a moment ago the quote that you mentioned or uh, that was mentioned a moment ago one of the realities of a college campus is that you have a number of individuals whose work, whose craft is to confront science and to reflect on the implications of science for our social uh, uh, realities, right? Um, uh, the importance of evidence and evidence-based kinds of, uh, of analyses. So it's just a matter of time for this to unfold on the college campuses. Um, that, all that right, we're going to watch how that mm-hmm. we're going to watch how all of that uh, plays out. Um, one other quick story. Uh, by the way, we're going to tomorrow. Uh, I mentioned it at the very top of the show today in the headlines uh, that uh, tomorrow the eleventh uh, uh, appeals circuit appeals court will take up Georgia's restrictive abortion law, which all but outlaws abortion entirely. Uh, it has so far been. Um, ruled to be unconstitutional by the lower court, and tomorrow we're going to see how the appeals court uh, deals with it or how the arguments go. There won't be a decision tomorrow, Um, and we'll take that up more extensively on tomorrow's show. But I want to do something very quickly. I want to recognize that Calvin Smyrie, it was announced uh, overnight, the dean of the Georgia legislature, 
has been appointed by President Biden uh, to be the ambassador to the Dominican Republic. Ernie, I know politics isn't your day-to-day beat, but Calvin, everybody knows who Calvin, in journalism knows, Calvin Smyrie was one of the great, has been one of the most important presences in politics in Georgia. And he certainly is in keeping with what we believe in so deeply on this show. You have to learn how to treat each other with respect and dignity and work across lines of difference to accomplish things. So, Ernie, it's going to be a real loss if that all goes through and he leaves the legislature. You're on mute, Ernie. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, like you said, Bill, I've known Calvin since, or or Mr. Smyrie since I moved to Atlanta. He's always been a great gentleman, a kind soul, and you're a great politician as well. So, you know, it's it's good that he has... um, risen to this level where he can be considered as an ambassador, but it would be a great loss to the state of Georgia as well. Uh, uh, Kevin, of course, of course, all the, you know, the, the Biden ambassador nominees are lined up for miles because they're not being acted on in, on the Hill. So who knows when this might happen for Calvin Smyrie, Kevin? Well, yeah. And he's been in the legislature since 1974. So this is, yeah. this is a guy who persists. Let's agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. That's it. We are completely out of time for today's show. We'll be talking about the Smyre nomination in the weeks ahead to see how it progresses. Um, thank you so much, um, Ernie. First of all, thank you, Ernie Suggs, for talking about that great piece uh, that you wrote in the paper that helps people understand an, an, an incident that has not been as well known as it needs to be here. Uh, Kurt Young, always a pleasure to have you on. Kevin Riley. I always look forward to Thursdays when you're my partner on the show. So that's it for us Uh, today. We're back tomorrow morning, of course. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask. If you know somebody who hasn't gotten a vaccine, please tell them now's the time to do it. And get your flu shot as well. Now, here's a last word on how you can help support our work. I'll see you tomorrow.